God's word this morning comes to us from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 13 through 20. And uh, our sister Joy, uh, since she introduced our speaker in such a joyful manner already, I will, uh, I will just read uh, God's word for us today and invite Pastor Mike to come up and deliver the message. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 20. Hear God's word. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Grass withers the flower phase, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Advent. As was said at the start of our worship, Advent is a very special, special time, special, uh, especially for those of us who live in between the already and not yet, right? And we get this, right? The kingdom has been given to us, but it hasn't been given to us yet. And so we live in between glory and brokenness, and, and that's our story, really. Um, but there is hope and grace in the midst of all of that. And I hope to be able to encourage you as we look at Matthew 16 together uh, to remind ourselves once again that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. I love the song that was saying earlier, Psalm 91, a song of Moses, one of my favorite psalms. Establish the work of our hands, Lord. Establish the work of our hands. And uh, empty tomb guarantees that he will. Amen? He will continue to do that. All right, well, uh, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll dive in, shall we? Father, thank you for your word. We need it more than we know. We ask that you would speak your truth to our hearts now, that you would feed us. You would give us strength and grace to believe and to apply these things into our lives for your glory and for our good. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but there are times when I uh, am reading a book or I watch a movie and I get so drawn into the story that I forget what I already know, which is how the story ends. Does this ever happen to you? Like, it happens all the time when I'm watching sports, too. Like, I see the final score and I know my beloved fighting Illini lose, but... During second quarter, when they're doing really well, I'm like, maybe there is hope. And I'm like, wait a minute. I know how this ends. They're going to lose, right? 
I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan, and so um, I, uh, I, let me just say, and for those of you who are my, in my age category, you understand this, but Lord of the Rings wasn't a reality back in the 1970s Korea, so I didn't know about Tolkien and his master work until uh, I was in college when my friends dragged me to the movie theater to watch The Fellowship of the Ring. That's how, was, how I was introduced to the Lord of the Rings. And I remember watching The Fellowship of the Ring, and I kept doing this. I'm like, man, it's been a long time, and they're nowhere near the mountain. What is going on? I'm like, dude, it's been three hours, and there's nowhere they're going to poke that thing and put it out. I'm like, what is going on? And that's when Frodo and Sam climb the side of the mountain, and they're looking off at a distance with the cascade of mountains still to go, and then the flame of the eye still there. And the credit starts to roll. And I'm like, this movie sucks. This is the worst movie in the world. How can this be? And that's when my friends nudge me. And they're like, it's a trilogy, dude. And I was like, oh, this is the greatest movie in the world. I love this. Well, even knowing that this was a trilogy, I remember watching The Two Towers and feeling a bit nervous. Remember that scene when, like, the horde of the Urukai gathered basically to kill a handful of people? You remember this? And I thought for sure, no, this, this can't be. Like, when they breached the outer walls, I thought, oh, my gosh, Sauron is going to win. Middle Earth is dead, right? And that's when, like, Aragorn is he's like, hey, ride out with me. I'm like, no, you're not going to ride out with him right now. All you got are just the two of you and, like, four horses against thousands of bad people. Just wait for Gandalf to come. And that's when I remembered that this was a trilogy. And that Peter Jackson, the director, and the cast were already pretty much done with making the third and final installment called The Return of the King. Oh, it's all about Erica. Okay, he's going to be okay. They're somehow going to survive this and make it out. Sometimes, as Christians... We get so caught up in the current cultural moment, politics and otherwise, that we forget how the story ends, don't we? Whether it's the headlines that dominate the news or the latest research statistics on post-COVID church, or just the busyness of everyday life, it's easy to think that the church is on life support, that somehow we're barely hanging on. And perhaps for you, it's not what's out there, but it's what's in here. It's a struggle that you've had with ongoing sin for decades. And maybe it's the lingering questions about faith and doubt about Christian belief. And these things blind you to the truth. And you sort of forget the narrative arc where all this is going. Fear and discouragement can weigh us down. They not only rob us of our joy, but they can crush our life too. But the good news that I want to share with you this morning is that the capital C church will triumph, and you along with it. You see, Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 4 that we are often afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted, 
but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. I think in these few verses, he sort of captures and summarizes what we often experience. And in the everyday of feeling defeated and crushed and forsaken, we question the character and the goodness and the promise of God. And before long, these seeds of doubt give way to a lot of unpleasant things. But Jesus reminds us that that is not how the story ends. And that's really what Advent is all about, isn't it? Advent is not so much about the first coming, but it's about the second coming of Christ. That he who came will come again. And upon his return, as Tolkien said, he will make every sad thing untrue. Apostle Paul reminds us, the church, despite what's going on out there and the things that you wrestle with in here, that we are more than conquerors in Christ. That's true of you right now. I know, it's hard to believe, but that's who you are. More than conquerors in Christ. Why? Because Christ died and rose again. And he walk, when he walked out of that tomb, he guaranteed our victory. And we are now in him, with him, seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And I know that feels so not real. So far from what you experience right now in this season of life for some of you. But that is a spiritual reality. That's where you are. And that's how the Father sees you. Your sin has been forgiven. Your struggle, gone. And that's why the Bible refuses to identify you as your struggle and sin. You are not those things. And one day, upon his return, you will taste all of this. And your faith will be made sight. But until then, Jesus gives us these words of hope. And this is long before his death and the empty tomb. Jesus reminds his followers, even here in Matthew 16, that there is hope. And hope is a powerful thing, isn't it? I want you to hear these words as we look into two things together. And I want you to find hope in Jesus. Okay? Let's look at two things together. First, Jesus offers hope by way of his identity, who he is. Verse 13 begins with the words, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus did everything intentionally, and there's a reason why he waited precisely for this moment and occasion to raise this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? This is not like a toddler who asks random questions. I have four kids. I lived through that stage where they would just blurt out random questions that made no sense contextually and otherwise. They would ask questions like, why is the sky blue? Are we there yet? And my personal favorite, where do babies come from? So why does Jesus raise this question? Two reasons. First, because of the growing false rumors about him. 
Earlier in the chapter, Jesus referred to the false rumors about him as leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You see, Jesus knew that it only took a handful of leaven to affect the entire dough. A small doubt, a lie, can affect the totality of our faith. And our enemy, the father of lies, has been up to his old tricks for a very long time. And he continues to plant seeds of doubt and lie into our minds and hearts. And I suggest that this really is a spiritual battle. Sure, spiritual battle can take this dramatic, extraordinary form as we read about from many missionaries and their testimonies. And that's all true. That continues even this day. Ephesians 6 confirms that. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, it says. But often our spiritual battle is believing in the truth and hanging on to the promise of God right here and allowing that to shape right here. This is our spiritual battle. So often the temptation is to look at our circumstance, the things that we didn't get, the things that we still hope for, the past hurts, pains, and disappointments, the future uncertainties. We take stock all of these things and we begin to form conclusions about God and his character. So often in our pain, we question God's goodness and we say, no, he is not good. He cannot be good because look at this pain. We look to the uncertain future and we say, there is no way God can be powerful. Otherwise, my future would be crystal clear with key markers along the way, helping me to pivot as necessary so that I can be successful in life. This is dangerous. We're not called to make conclusions about God, his promises and character based on what we see and experience. That's why the word of God, the testimony of the apostles and prophets are written for us so that we go to the word, the truth, and we wrestle. We wrestle with the truth until we understand and believe that spiritual battle. So I want to encourage you, the people of God, to every day, Grapple with the word of God. This is discipleship. This is where it begins. Because if the enemy wins this, then he wins this, and he wins everything else. And you've been there. I know. Because I've been there. When I bought lies and believed that, and boy, I was not very missional, <laughs> I was not very servant-like, and so on and so forth. The second reason why Jesus waits for this moment to ask the question is because of the context. Across Caesarea Philippi in the region of Mount Hermon, 25 miles north of Sea of Galilee, there is an enormous rock on the side of a mountain like a solid wall stretching straight up to the heavens, scholars say. At its base is a cave, which used to be a source of water for Jordan River. And this entrance of the cave was no longer a cave, but it became the center of all things idolatry. 
Herod Philip built a temple to Caesar and to the god Pan. And to further stack the deck, if you will, he gave orders for carvings of statues of many, many, many different gods. And this place became known as the Gates of Hell. Their ministry took them right to the gates of hell. And Jesus, knowing the lesson that he had for them, pauses to ask the question, who do people say I am? The disciples answer, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Pretty good company, isn't it, Jesus? Like, they think you're a prophet. Now, the disciples say this because John was already dead, and maybe he came back from the dead. Maybe Jesus is the Elijah of old who came to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Or they sense that Jesus wasn't very popular among the religious leaders of his time, so maybe you're Jeremiah. You're persecuted like him. But hey, you're in good company. You're among the prophets. But that is not good enough for Jesus. So he turns to his disciples and asks, yeah, but who do you say I am? Now, Jesus will answer this very question in the next chapter in Matthew 17, in the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John will see Jesus in his glorious state. Their eyes will be open, curtain rolled back, and they will see Jesus as he really is. But for now, Jesus asks, and he waits. Peter speaks up on behalf of the group, and he says, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. These two titles are loaded with theological references, so we're going to pause a little bit to unpack them. The title Christ means the promised Messiah, the anointed one. Now, what does this mean? In the Old Testament, three people, three offices were anointed, prophet, priest, and king. And they understood that this Messiah figure who is to come will be not just a prophet, a priest, or a king, but that he would be prophet, priest, and king like never before. And when you read through the New Testament gospel narratives, you see that to be the case. Jesus is not just a prophet who speaks on behalf of God to his people, but he is the very word incarnate himself. And that's why he says, you want to see the Father? See me. You want to know what the Father is like? Get to know me. If you have seen me and you know me, you know and have seen the Father himself. Because he is the perfect reflection, an extension of God the Father himself by way of the word made flesh. But not only is he the prophet like never before, he is the priest like never before. As you know, in the Old Testament, the high priest would one time a day, a year, will go to the most holy place and offer a sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people. And God will look upon that sacrifice and he will extend mercy on the mercy seat and forgive. Jesus is the priest like no other priests. And he does not offer a lamb or a bull, but he offers himself. He is the perfect lamb of God. And through the shedding of his blood, now there is forgiveness. Not just once a year, but for all the time to come. 
And not only that, he continues in his high priestly ministry as he prays for you even now. Did you know that Jesus always prays for you? Even when you have no faith, even when you can't utter more than five words, even when you can't sit to put together a thought, and all you can say is, God, I don't know what to pray for. Jesus says, that's good enough. I'm praying for you. He lives to intercede for you even right now. And because he prays in his name, the perfect name, the Father always answers with a resounding yes. People of God, I want you to be comforted to know that we have a great high priest whose work is not yet done. He prays for you now. He knows where you are exactly. He enters all that mess and brokenness. He knows all the unspoken desires and longings you live with. And he presents those things to the Father. And the Father hears. And he's working around the clock to bring about your good. And he is the king like no other kings. The Hebrew Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, it's called the Tanakh, ends with not Malachi, but the Chronicles. The Chronicles are very different when you do a side-by-side -side comparison with the Samuels and the Kings, in that they gloss over a lot of the details. Why? Are they ashamed of some of the things that David did, for example? No, it's not that. It's written after the exile. And the author is looking back at Israel's history with a burning question on his heart, and that is this. Where is this king that was promised to us? There was Saul, but he wasn't even from the line of Judah. Was he? Because Genesis 49.10, you got this tattooed on all of your arms, right? The kings will come from line of Judah, as promised. But Saul was a Benjaminite. So you knew immediately that this was the wrong guy. And here comes David. And he checks off a lot of the boxes. Line of Judah. Ruddy. Handsome. First Samuel says. He's a warrior. A poet. Oh my gosh. It's like every lady's dream, right? This, certainly, he is the king we have been waiting for. And you look at his early days, and you're like, yes, he is that king. But then a lot of things happen where you're like, uh, no, no, no. And then he has a son, Solomon, even more handsome, beautiful lock of hair. I don't know how that's on the resume even, but it's mentioned in the scripture as if it's like an impressive attribute. And you look at him and you're like, man, this guy's wise. Maybe he's the one. You know the story. He doesn't do too well either. And now, the author of Chronicles is wondering, where is this king? Where is this king who was promised to us, one who will bring in true shalom? Not only for Israel, for, but for the world. As nations bring their gifts and worship, where is this king? 
And it is no coincidence that the New Testament opens with the words in Matthew 1.1, here is a son of David, the son of Abraham. You know what Matthew is saying? Here's your king, the one we have been waiting for. Jesus is that king, the servant king, who wraps the servant's towel around his waist to wash our feet, to perform the most humiliating task so that by his deeds that we would know the Father's great love for us. And the very hands that washed our feet would be stretched on the cross the very next day. And it stands as a testament for his amazing love for us even still. Behold your king. The second title, the son of the living God, is a doubling down of the title Christ and speaks to Jesus' kingship as David's heir, the promised one. And Peter got it right. Man, he nailed it. And it wasn't because he was more perceptive. And it certainly wasn't because he took some classes at a seminary and, and uh, he got leg up over the rest. No. Jesus says in verse 17, it was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. Friends, can I encourage you to be humble about your knowledge and understanding of the truth and the gospel? So often we take even the gifts of God and we abuse them to lord over others. And we think because we know that we are better. No. Our knowledge of the word, our understanding of the truth, our grasp of the gospel should make us humble. It should lead us to more service, passionate worship, outreach. And it should be seen in the form of welcome on Sunday mornings hospitality, building a longer table rather than canceling people and embracing the people that God has put in our lives, including those whom we disagree with. This question, who do you say I am, makes all the difference both in this age and in the age to come. Friends, if you're not a Christian, if you've been coming to church for some time and you are wrestling with this and you have not yet reached a conclusion, let me just say what C.S. Lewis many decades ago said, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, but he cannot be all of those things. And he certainly cannot be a great teacher because if he were a great teacher, actually he'd be the worst teacher in the world, and I agree. Jesus, if he's a liar, cannot save you. Jesus, if he's a lunatic, cannot save you. If Jesus is a great moral teacher, he can only show you the way, but he certainly cannot save you. But he is the Lord, the one who entered our world, took on flesh, gave his life, rose again, and spoke promises to return one day. Only he can save you. And Peter says this in Acts 4, 12, that salvation is in no other name under heaven except this name, the name Jesus. And I want to encourage you, for those of you who are struggling in your faith, wrestling with questions and doubts, keep coming to this church. 
And I really think that is the best thing you can do because sometimes the answer is not a theological proposition, but experience. It's one thing for me to try to explain by way of words the grandeur of Grand Canyon, but it's another thing for you to actually go and see it yourself. Sometimes the answer must be felt, seen. And that's what you get to do when you come to this church. Show me Jesus and I will believe. And this church says, well, we are the body of Christ. Come and see. Come and see what Jesus is like. Sure, we're not perfect, but you'll catch glimpses of what is good, true, and beautiful. Lived out, demonstrated here. So, a missional application for Christians. I pray that you will live into this calling, the high calling of being a preview, earthly preview of the glory that is to come. And for non-Christians, keep on coming. Bring your questions, your doubts with you. Because we have questions and doubts too. Dang it, I, 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 I'm a pastor. I teach at a seminary and I don't have everything together. Anyone who claims to have perfect faith, no questions, is a liar. Because on this side of heaven, we're called to imperfect faith. And it's okay. The question, who do you say I am, has a different dimension, if you will. It operates and functions at a micro everyday level too. You see, Christians, how you answer that question every morning in prayer and in the word makes all the difference in how you love your spouse, in the ways that you parent, in the ways that you deal with your roommates, your friends, your coworkers the way you serve in this church community and beyond. Who do you say he is? Is he Christ, the Son of God? Then you have no right to demand things from your spouse. You're called to humble service, even when things don't seem fair. Who do you say I am? Is he the Christ, the Son of David? Then you have to bite your tongue and love on your teenage kids, even when they rebel and question your motives and write you off as horrible. Who do you say I am? If he is the Christ, the son of David, then you need to get plugged into this community, not just to consume what's offered on Sundays, but really be a part of it and serve this community because Christ is on a mission to beautify the bride. And if that's his mission, then you have a role to play. He's given you gifts. Serve. Use the gifts to help beautify this local bride so that this congregation becomes more like Christ. But your work is not yet done, as we will see here in a little bit. You have a call and responsibility to the world because Jesus is extending his church, his domain, to the very ends of the earth. And he has given you gifts. If he really is your Christ, the son of David, your savior, who had bought you, redeemed you, and entered into a blood oath to come back for you, then you have responsibility to missions as well.
first thing that Jesus wants us to see is his identity, who he really is. And if we could understand his identity, that he is not just a teacher or even a prophet, but God himself, word made flesh. Then you and I can look past the present struggles and doubts and future uncertainties, even the challenges of committing to this community and to engage faithfully in serving and loving those God has brought to us. And your labor in the Lord will not be in vain, amen? Because he will bless and establish the work of your hands. Quickly now, let's look at the second point, Jesus' mission. After Jesus establishes his identity, he then begins to outline his mission in verse 18. The meaning of verse 18 has been debated because Jesus' promise to build his church relies on, hinges on, a play on words, if you will. The name Peter in Greek is Petros, or Petros, I should say, which is a masculine form of the word rock. But the phrase on this rock uses the Greek word Petra, which is a feminine form of the word rock. So which is it? Is Jesus going to build his church on Peter the Apostle, or is Jesus going to build his church on Peter's confession of faith that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? Now, many in the Reformed tradition have reacted against the Catholic Church to say we don't believe in that stuff. We don't believe that Peter is the Pope or the first Pope, and therefore it's got to be his confession. By the way, it makes better sense because Peter, the person, was probably C-plus at best. And that's being generous. I mean, look, we all, like when we try to fire something, right, we ready, aim, fire. Peter was ready, fire, aim guy. He was always saying things without thinking about his words, and he would get in trouble. But not only that, even after the Pentecost, he wasn't that great to a point where Apostle Paul actually had to confront him of his sin. So surely, Jesus here means, I will build my church on Peter's confession. Well, if you were to ask me the question, which is it? Mike, is it on Peter or is it on his confession? And my answer would be yes. It's both. Jesus will build his church, period. Why? Because he is the cornerstone, the firm foundation, the rock of our salvation, the head of the church. He has promised to build his church, and he doesn't need a whole lot to do it. He can use cricket sticks to draw a straight line, as we often say, and he, all he needs are just a handful of bread and fish to feed the multitude. In fact, when we are weak, his power is made perfect. You better believe that he doesn't need superheroes in capes, but he just needs willing, broken, Jars of clay to say, Lord, here I am. The book of Acts tracks this. 
Jesus uses the apostles and their teaching to establish and grow his church. Like I said, Peter and the apostles weren't perfect, and praise God for that. Because if after the Pentecost, Peter was somehow perfect and didn't sin from there, that point on, and somehow he was a spiritual giant, only spoke in the lofty theological propositions and his feet didn't really touch ground, right? Then I'd be really discouraged because in one sense, all of us have had the Pentecost moment, meaning the spirit, the same spirit that came down upon them lives also in us. I praise God that Peter was just as broken, struggling to get things right as I do now. Because that's my story. And that's your story. And that is more than enough in the hands of a capable Savior to build his church. And he will fulfill that promise. The promise to bless all peoples on earth. To undo the curse of sin. To bring true shalom and glory upon his return. You know, I love how the book of Acts ends. It starts with a very small church, doesn't it? Well, not so small, because after Peter's first sermon, like thousands convert and they're being added, you know, every day. This movement that began in Acts chapter 2, if you will, closes in Acts 20 with these words. And the church was forcefully advancing. It wasn't just surviving. It wasn't just offering programs to appease the people. It wasn't just, hey, we met the budget this year. No, it was forcefully advancing to the very end of the world. And Jesus says not even the very gates of hell would be able to withstand it. Like I said, I love uh, Lord of the Rings. And remember that scene in the Fellowship of the Ring where the council is gathered, Frodo brings forth the ring, the collective like gasp, like, oh my, it's, it's there, it exists. Oh my gosh, what do we do? Let's use it for, you know, our, all that stuff. And, uh, and they say, no, you, you can't destroy the ring. You, the only way you can destroy it is to take it back to the fires of Mordor and then throw that dang thing in there. And then one of the, one of the council members say, well, you don't simply march to the gates, the black gates of Mordor, right? That, which has now become this famous meme, you know? You don't simply march to, you don't simply do, right? What are gates? Gates are the last line of defense in war. You've seen the movies, right? Gladiator, for those of you my age, like nearing 50, right? You, you, you've seen Russell Crowe, right? The gladiator. When do you see the gates? Not at the beginning of the war. You don't bring city gates to the front lines of war like, okay, now we're set. Let's No. The gates are the last line of defense. You see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying the church will prevail. It will forcefully advance to the very ends of the earth. And even when you come upon the very gates of our enemies, it would not be able to withstand the church from taking over. 
In fact, all of us, truth be told, our hearts before we became Christians were the very gates of hell. And yet the gospel broke in. It destroyed the very gates of hell. And now the gospel has turned enemies into servants, friends, sons and daughters. And on our good days, we experience joyful and faithful obedience. This is our hope, people of God, that Christ, he's on a mission and he's going to accomplish it. And you may be in the locker room at halftime right now looking at the scoreboard thinking, man, we're down by 20. How are we going to do this? And the Jesus, our captain, he says, what do you mean? The scoreboard is actually, if you look past it, you will see the final score. We win by a landslide. And you're invited to this story. And don't stand on the stands and watch from a distance. It's better to play the game than watch it. God's given you many opportunities to jump in, dive in, and have fun. And I know it's not easy, but he will use you and bless you to accomplish this very purpose. As it was said, I am part of this mission organization uh, called Radstock, and every year we have this roundtable conference, and this year we had it in Ireland. And uh, my first time there, beautiful. The, the greenery there is very green, um, and I found out it's because it rains all the time. The summer is like two weeks long, and that's it. I was like, ooh, okay. <laughs> I don't ever want to go back, because I kind of like sunshine. Well. Uh, we've had many speakers from different parts of the world come and share, and we had one pastor from Ukraine come and uh, share his testimony. And he was telling us stories about how uh, the day before he got on the plane to come to Ireland, his neighborhood was bombed. And you would hear sirens all the time, people running away and whatnot. And what you and I hear on the news, it, it, it's basically rated G of the real thing, Okay. The real thing is hard to stomach, especially given that it is 2022 with all our advancements and hopefully lessons learned from wars one and two. Apparently, that is not the case. Spoke of unspoken suffering of the people in Ukraine. And I don't mean the cold. I don't mean the lack of resource, but physical torture that's going on in Russia. But he reminded us that there is hope still. That many who have fled the eastern part of Ukraine are coming to his church, which is in the western part of Ukraine, and they're receiving aid in the name of Christ. In a time when they feel forgotten and overlooked, here's a beacon, a kingdom outpost bit of nowhere in Ukraine that is loving for these people in the name of Jesus. The aid has poured in from all over the world, including this church and many in America and different parts of the world pouring in thousands and tens of thousands of dollars to provide for those that are in major 
major crises. But he goes on to say, God is not yet done with the Ukrainian people. Sure, many are experiencing the love of Christ for the first time, but we have missionaries now that are going out of this country to share the good news. I said, that's wonderful. And he said, it's because of the war. Almost overnight, many Christians in Ukraine fled the country and they went to Poland. And guess what? Poland is the least Christianized country in that part of the world. The Christian population almost doubled overnight to Christians that have fled. And now in the name of Christ are sharing the good news. Not even the gates of hell. Not even war and all of its atrocities can withstand our king from advancing. So whether you are looking at your own heart and struggle and being discouraged, or you're looking at the mission both near and far and wondering how is this ever going to happen, I want to encourage you to look to him. Look to him and let these words anchor you in full confidence and hope that until he comes, he's going to aid us to be victorious for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you not only call us into a gospel community like this, but you call us to engage the world. You call us to yourself so that you can send us out, so that we can be your hands and feet, tangible expressions of the promise of glory to come. And I pray that you would bless our efforts, both near and far. Start with our hearts. May we see kingdom advance there. But Lord, we don't want to just end there. We want to engage in the work that you are heading. And we want to be a part of this grand story, one that will not only be victorious, but glorious. So Lord, use us. Establish the work of our hands. Help us to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because we know that our labor in you is not in vain. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you could stand at this time and we'll respond in, in praise.